Hello and welcome to the Literature Podcast, A Novel Review. My name is Seamus, your host, and together we will discuss, dissect, and explore the wonderful world of literature, and the wonderful world of literature is a vast and dense jungle, so let's start making our way through, one book at a time. Hello, good day, and welcome to the beginning of another episode of A Novel Review, a podcast exploring the wonderful world of literature. My name is Seamus and I'm your host, and for today's episode, the sad and dark truth about the grass being greener. Did you guess it? Probably not because that was vague, but today I will be discussing Nella Larson's 1929 novel, Passing. But before I jump into this book, I always take a moment to reflect on any mantelpiece moments something to highlight from the week past, and in the last episode of the podcast I talked about how I had just visited Nantes in France, and this town is the birthplace of Jules Verne, which I did not know before going there, which is probably a very bad thing to admit, but you know, that's where we're at right now. I haven't actually read any Jules Verne as of yet, you know, he is on my list, and maybe this is the sign and excuse to read some, I don't know, we'll see, but Anyways, he, he was born here and it's said the town was a major influence on his works. And visiting the town years after him, it's actually very cool to see how, and I'm kind of making an assumption here, but how the hangover of Jules Verne has shaped part of the city's identity. Murals are painted for him, statues, there's countless independent bookshops. One I saw was a sci-fi and fantasy only, which was very cool because I do feel sci-fi and fantasy are overlooked in the literature genre. There's also a manga shop, which was incredibly well visited by people who were also dressing up in cosplay and dancing round. And this is perhaps the most absurd thing as well. There was a mechanical rideable elephant. Now, go and Google and just type in Nantes and elephant and it'll pop up, I'm sure. And the idea of it is it's an homage to Jules Verne and Da Vinci, who reportedly helped inspire and shape Verne with ideas when Verne would, you know, research his books and whatever. So it's it's a decent place to visit. I mean, of course, the food is amazing. You know, the pastries, croissants, oh, God. Housekeeping, as always, all the scripts from the episode are available on my website, just in case you know of anyone who has a hearing impairment who might get a kick out of a written version of the pod. So head along. They're all free for use for all to enjoy. Okay, time to jump into this criminally underrated, dark and very dense novella. This novel follows the lives of two African-American women, Irene Redfield and Claire Kendry, who grew up together but took different paths in life. Irene is a well-established middle-class woman who lives in Harlem with her husband and two sons. Claire, on the other hand, has been passing as a white woman and has married a white man who knows nothing about her racial background. The plot thickens when Claire reappears in Irene's life and the two women reconnect. Irene is torn between her loyalty to her race and community and her admiration for Claire's beauty, charm, and freedom. As the story unfolds, Larson raises important questions about the cost and benefits of passing, the psychological toll of racism, and the complexity of human relationships. Now that's kind of just an overview of the text, and I just kind of launched into that, my apologies for that, but I feel we need to have an overview as to what passing is, because I had never heard of it before this novel. Passing, or to be more exact, racial passing, is the act when someone who is classified as one member of a racial group is accepted or perceived as a member of another and is therefore passing as them. 
This novel is such a carefully delicate exploration of the boundaries of perception and freedom, and what humans will actually go through and suffer, and it absolutely captures the difficulty and hardships black people had to live through. So let's kick things off with a quote, I reckon, because it's, it's, it's such a lovely book, and this is just one of the, one of the quotes that evokes this duality between the, the, the nature of passing. It's funny about passing. We disapprove of it and at the same time condone it. It excites our contempt and yet we rather admire it. We shy away from it with an odd kind of revulsion, but we protect it. It's curious because in this quote there is an idea of protecting the idea of passing, but what I think Nella Larson meant was protecting those that have passed. It is such a difficult interplay of the grass being greener. To pass you had to sacrifice a large part of your identity for a perception. In this sense, you had to become something you were not, to become something you could never be. You had to sacrifice one form of safety for another, but in doing so, also put yourself in harm's way. A black person might look over the fence and think that passing and being white was a great thing, and yet those who passed might find themselves isolated in a way that abstracted themselves from their identity. Larson captures this in the quote, She was caught between two allegiances, different yet the same, herself her race, race, the thing that bound and suffocated her. Whatever step she took, if she took none at all, something would be crushed. A person or the race, Claire, herself, or the race. And the stupid thing about the grass being greener over the fence is that the fence needn't have existed in the first place. And so ultimately you are faced with the complex question, is it better to accept who you are and where you stand in society because at least that has a definition, or would you risk it, this form of security for a better life, knowing that it could be snatched away from you at any moment. It does make you wonder. Throughout this novel, there are so many emotionally charged quotes, none more so than the ones that explore freedom and the fatality of human action. And, oh boy, okay. I I have a passage here that I'm going to read for you, and I... I need to preface this by saying that it is an incredibly hate-filled passage with words I would not use otherwise, because they are, quite frankly, abhorrent. So why am I using them now, you might ask? And that is a very fair question, and one that I did definitely labour over. The use of this word, no matter how unsettling and disgusting, I feel it is important. It is important to remember not only the word itself, but the context in which it was used, and the emotion that was used to drive it forward as you will see through this passage. At first, I, I did think I would substitute the word in the passage, and I decided against that because that almost felt disrespectful in a sense that I was removing part of the hatred from the lips of those who spoke their evil thoughts into existence. It is racist, and it is wrong, and I just wanted to say this little piece first so you know my position before I read the passage. For context, this is a passage in which John Billow is doing the speaking of all things racist, he has married Claire, who is a black woman who has passed, and though he doesn't know it because he thinks she is white, she has started to get a little darker as she ages. So he has what he considers a fun nickname of Nig for her, as a playful joke to the fact that she was and started to resemble a black person. So that's the very sad context of this passage, and here we go. The man chuckled, crinkling up his eyes, not Irene was compelled to acknowledge unpleasantly. He explained, Well, you see, it's like this. When we were first married, she was as white as, as, or white as a lily. But I declare she's getting darker and darker. Till if she don't look out, she'll wake up one of these days and find out she's turned into a nigger. 
he roared with laughter. Claire's ringing bell-like laugh joined his. Gertrude, after another uneasy shift in her seat, added her shrill one. Irene, who had been sitting with her lips tightly compressed, cried out, That's good, and gave way to gales of laughter. She laughed and laughed and laughed. Tears ran down her cheeks. Her sides ached, her throat hurt. She laughed on and on and on, long after the others had subsided. Until, catching sight of Claire's face, the need for a more quiet enjoyment of this priceless joke, and for caution, struck her. At once she stopped. Claire handed her husband his tea and laid her hand on his arm with an affectionate little gesture. Speaking with confidence as well as amusement, she said, My goodness, Jack, what difference would it make if after all these years you were to find out that I was one or two percent coloured? Bellew put out his hand in a repudiating fling, definite and final. Oh no, Nig, he declared. Nothing like that with me. I know you're no nigger, so it's all right. You can get as black as you please as far as I'm concerned, since I know you're no nigger. I draw the line at that. No niggers in my family. Never have been, never will be. Irene's lip trembled almost uncontrollably, but she made a desperate effort to fight back her disastrous desire to laugh again and succeeded. Carefully selecting a cigarette from the lacquered box on the tea table before her, she turned to an oblique look on Claire and encountered her peculiar eyes fixed on her with an expression so dark and deep and unfathomable that she had for a short moment the sensation of gazing into the eyes of some creature utterly strange and apart. A faint sense of danger brushed her, like the breath of a cold fog. Absurd, her reason told her as she accepted Bella's proffered light for her cigarette. Another glance at Claire showed her smiling. So, as one always ready to oblige, was Gertrude. An onlooker, Irene reflected, would have thought it a most congenial tea party, all smiles and jokes and hilarious laughter. She said humorously, So you dislike Negroes, Mr. Bellow? But her amusement was at her thought, rather than her words. John Bellow gave a short, denying laugh. Ha! You got me wrong there, Miss Redfield. Nothing like that at all. I don't dislike him. I hate him. And so does Nig, for all she's trying to turn into one. She wouldn't have a nigger maid around for all her love and money. Not that I'd want her to. They give me the creeps, the black, scrammy devils. Okay, wow, okay, that was the passage. And, I mean, upon reflection, it's it's a curious one, because if it wasn't so wrapped up in blind racism, you might actually say it's funny. Funny in the sense that John Bellew's obstinate racism has him blind to reason. He doesn't care if Claire gets black because he believes that she is fundamentally white. And so the whole idea of it is ridiculous. But it was a very, very real issue. In America in the 20th century, some states, particularly in the South, had the one-drop rule, which meant that even if you had one drop of black blood, you were seen as inferior. But that's also why I chose this passage, and I think it is important, because it highlights not just how stupid the hatred was, you know, John doesn't actually care if his wife is black, so long as she's not the thing that he attaches meaning to. Essentially, remove the attachment, and what is there? I mean... <laughs> nothing you know just the fear that these people had that they were holding in their hearts you know so like let's turn away from all this racism and needless hatred now to praise Nella Larson a touch for her writing style the writing style as you would have just heard in that taster is very very nice very thoughtful it's not showy it's not trying to do something outrageous it's delicate language that moves through the motions of a delicate story Nella Larson has a very real control over her writing, which is just another strength 
Nella Larsen has a very real control over her writing, which is just another strength through the use of her language. Nella Larson has a very real control over her language, which is, you know... Let's, let's, let's turn away now from all this racism and needless hatred now to praise Nella Larson a touch for her writing style. The writing style, as you would have just heard in that, you know, in that vile taster, is, is, is actually very nice. It's, it's incredibly thoughtful, it's not showy, it's not trying to do something outrageous. It's, it's incredibly delicate language that moves through the motions of a very delicate story. Nella Larson has a real control over her language, and another strength of it is just her use of language and imagery. Her prose is elegant, evocative, and as I said, but it is also rich in symbolism. She uses mirrors, windows, and other reflective surfaces to highlight themes of duality and the tension between appearances and reality. She also employs vivid descriptions of clothes, hairstyles, and gestures to reveal the character's social status and identity. For instance, Irene's rusty black dress and Claire's flamingo pink coat reflect their different attitude towards fashion conformity. It's a very timely book that still resonates as much as it did back in the late 20s, 1920s, I should probably start, start prefacing, as it does today. I believe it's incredibly underrated and very much unsung. If I had to give it a rating, it would definitely be a 4.2 out of 5 because it is simple, it's frighteningly wonderful, and so you know what to do. So, what am I reading this week? This week I am reading Ice by Anna Kavan, which is this kind of apocalyptic sci-fi novel taking place on Earth, and there's this giant ice shelf engulfing the world after a nuclear disaster. It's, it's a supremely curious novel because it follows a man who is pursuing a woman, and so far, that is the story. I have read that there is not really a storyline running through the novel, but its vagueness gives it this kind of crypticness that makes it really, really eerie. And, like, nothing is said outright. You are just kind of drip-fed little passages of information that help sketch the world and the state it's in and it's suffered through. So that's, that's what I'm reading this week. Now, before I close out the show, if you've listened this far, please consider hitting those five stars. I would really appreciate it. Also, feel free to head along to the website and support the pod. And of course, thank you, thank you, thank you for your attention. So I think it's time to end this episode. And today to take us away, I think a bit of Maya Angelou's wisdom to ferry us to the end. And she says, We cannot change the past, but we can change our attitude towards it. Uproot guilt and plant forgiveness. Tear out arrogance and seed humility. Exchange love for hate, thereby making the present comfortable and the future promising. <laughs>